You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. In ancient Greek stories, the Queen of Libya, a beautiful woman named Lamia, is said to have fallen in love with the powerful god Zeus, bearing him several children. When Zeus's wife, the jealous goddess Hera, learned of the affair, she avenged herself by killing Lamia's children. Driven to madness by her grief and desire for vengeance, Lamia began seeking out children by night and devouring them. Her cruelty transformed her. Her appearance began to change from a beautiful woman to that of a haunted night creature, a monstrous serpent. When Zeus took pity on her and gave her the ability to shapeshift, she used this power to transform herself into a beautiful woman again in order to lure young men. Once she succeeded, she resumed her monstrous form and devoured them. A while back, I did an episode on goddesses of magic in ancient Greek literature. In that episode, I told the stories of Hecate, Circe, and Medea, as they were depicted in Greek epic and drama. These three goddesses were famed for their ability to create love potions and poisons, but were, without a doubt, universally alluring, as beautiful and seductive as they were powerful. By the Roman era, however, the image of the goddess of magic had given way to the hideous and horrifying Roman witch. In this episode, I bring you the stories of two of the most famous and terrifying witches in Roman literature, Canidia and Erichtho. Although the Roman witch Canidia appears elsewhere, the poet Horace, writing around 30 BCE, gives us the most complete description. In fact, Canidia appears in not one but two of Horace's works, epodes and satires. In Epode 5, she leads a group of other witches who, having kidnapped a wealthy youth, bury him up to his neck in order to starve him to death. Their plan is to use his internal organs, now filled with intense longing for food, as the main ingredients for a love potion. In Horace's telling, the youth pleads for his life before recognizing that his situation is hopeless, at which point he curses the witches. Horace's descriptions of the witches, Canidia, Sagana, and Veia, include all the ancient trappings of harmful magic. As he tells it, Canidia, with short vipers entwined in her disheveled hair, bids bring wild fig trees rooted up among the tombs, bids bring funereal cypresses, and eggs and feathers of the nightly screech owl smeared with the blood of a hideous toad, and herbs sent from Iolcus and Iberia, the fruitful gardens of magic drugs, and bones snatched from between the teeth of a starving dog, and burn them all in the witch's flame. Sagana, meanwhile, girt up for the task, sprinkles all over the house waters of Avernus, her hair on end like a sea urchin or a boar as she bustles about. Veia, not deterred a whit by the full knowledge of her crime, 
was scooping out of the ground with the stubborn spade, groaning as she dug a hole where the boy might be buried and die, that they might take out the marrow and the liver to make a filter. Once Canidia speaks, we learn why she needs the love potion. Her lover, Varys, has left her. She complains, What has happened? Surely no herb, no root, though it lurked in rough places, has escaped me. The bed he sleeps on has been smeared with that which brings oblivion of all other loves. Huh, I see it now. He goes free, for he is loosed by the spell of some witch of greater skill. It is no vulgar filter that shall bring you with speed back to me. Oh, Varys, poor soul that must shed many tears. I have a more potent plan to try, a more potent cup to brew. And sooner shall the heaven sink below the sea and the earth be spread above it, than that you should not burn with love for me. Canidia has another significant, if slightly less terrifying, appearance in Horace's satires. The story, told by a sentient wooden statue set to guard over the forgotten graves of paupers in the Esquiline Gardens, features a terrifying account of Canidia's night doings at the cemetery, cut short by a comic twist. The statue relates, I myself saw Canidia with her sable garment tucked up, walk with bare feet and disheveled hair, yelling together with the elder Sagana. Paleness had rendered both of them horrible to behold. They began to claw up the earth with their nails and to tear a black ewe lamb to pieces with their teeth. The blood was poured into a ditch that thence they might charm out the shades of the dead. Ghosts that were to give them answers. There was a woolen effigy, too, another of wax. The woolen one larger, which was to inflict punishment on the little one. The waxen stood in a suppliant posture, as ready to perish in a servile manner. One of the hags invokes Hecate, and the other fell to Siphony. Then might you see serpents and infernal bitches wander about, and the moon with blushes hiding beneath the lofty monuments that she might not be a witness to these doings. Why should I mention every particular? Namely, in what manner, speaking alternately with Sagana, the ghosts uttered dismal and piercing shrieks, and how by stealth they laid in the earth a wolf's beard with the teeth of a spotted snake, and how a great blaze flamed forth from the waxen image, and how I was shocked at the voices and actions of these two. Canidia and Sagana are interrupted, however, when the statue decides it's had enough and lets out an enormous fart, startling the witches and sending them running. As the statue tells us, They ran into the city, and with exceeding laughter and diversion might you have seen Canidia's artificial teeth and Sagana's tower of false hair falling off. Strangely, Horace, or at least a character named Horace, goes on to offer an apology of sorts for his mistreatment of Canidia and begs her to lift the curse of old age and illness from him. I yield, I yield to the power of your science, and on my knees I pray, by the realm of Proserpina and by the might of Diana that none may provoke, I and by the book of magic, Spells that can draw the stars from the sky and bring them down to earth. Canidia, stay at length your mystic words and let go, loose and let go the spinning wheel. 
I have suffered your vengeance enough and to spare. My youth is gone, and the blushing pink has left me, mere bones covered with yellow skin. My hair is white from your magic perfumes. No rest gives me respite from my pain. Day treads on the heels of night and night of day, nor can I draw the breath that would ease my strained lungs. What wish you more? O oh, sea and earth, you are a laboratory of magic drugs, whose fires will not slacken till I am burnt to ashes for the winds to scatter in their rough play. I am ready to offer expiation if you shall ask. I shall tune my lyre to falsehood and sing of you. You, the modest, you, the good, shall walk among the stars a golden constellation. Canidia, however, isn't having it, and she refuses to listen to Horace's plea. Instead, she reveals that she looks forward to getting her revenge on the arrogant poet. She replies, Why pour prayers on sealed ears? Not more deaf are the rocks to the naked sailor's cry when the winter sea lashes them with high-running surf. To think that without suffering for it, you should have divulged and laughed at the rites and the mysteries of free love. And after playing the pontiff at my witcheries on the Esquiline, should have made me with impunity the talk of the town. But the fate that awaits you is slower than you would pray for. You shall wish now to leap from tower tops, now to pierce your breast with a sword of Noric steel. In vain shall you twist nooses for your throat in the anguish of your weary sorrow. What, though I can make waxen images feel, as you know through your prying, and can snatch the moon from the sky by my spells, can call up the dead from their urns and brew a filter of desire, must I mourn the issue of an art powerful against you? Some scholars think Horace's Canidia was actually a real woman, a perfume seller named Gratidia, who was once the poet's lover, but who abandoned him. In Horace's fertile imagination, the ex he just couldn't get over became an anti-muse, a hideous, tormenting witch. century after Horace, the Roman poet Lucan describes the historical civil war between Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar in his Pharsalia. In Book 6, Lucan offers the story of Pompey's son, Sextus, who, frightened by the possibility of dying in the war, decides he must find someone who can foretell the future. Rather than consult an oracle of the gods, like the Cumaean Sibyl in the poet Virgil's Aeneid, Instead, Sextus seeks out a powerful witch. Pompey's army had withdrawn to Thessaly, widely regarded in ancient Greek stories as a place rife with poison, necromancy, and other harmful magic. Lucan writes, He had gained knowledge of the secrets of the ruthless magicians detested by the gods above, and the altars sad with dreadful sacrifices in the aid of shades below, and of Pluto, and to him, wretched man, it seemed clear that the gods of heaven knew too little. 
Through the charms of the Thessalian witches, a love not induced by the fates had entered into hardened hearts, and stern old men have burned with illicit flames. They attract by the magic whirling of the twisted threads. At another time, they fill all places with showers. By those same words, with hair hanging loose, have they scattered abroad far and wide, soaking clouds and showers. The earth, too, has shaken the axle of her unmoved weight. Seeking out the worst and most powerful witch, Sextus finds Erichtho sitting on a crag in the midst of graves she's plundered, and pleads with her to tell him how the Civil War will end. Lucan's description of Erichtho couldn't be further from the beautiful, seductive enchantresses of the ancient Greek world. Instead, Erichtho is a lean and terrifying hag, who delights in her reputation as the most evil of all the Thessalian witches. As Lucan tells it, These rites of criminality, these spells of the direful race, the wild Erichtho has condemned of being of piety too extreme, and has applied the polluted art to new ceremonies. For to her it is not permitted to place her deadly head within a roof or home in the city, and she haunts the deserted piles and the ghosts expelled, takes possession of the tombs. Leanness has possession of the features of the hag. Foul with filthiness and unknown to a clear sky, her dreadful visage, laden with uncombed locks, is beset with Stygian paleness. If showers and black clouds obscure the stars, then does the Thessalian witch stalk forth from the spoiled piles and try to arrest the lightnings of the night. Pleased to hear that her reputation has traveled far and wide, Erichtho decides to reveal the future to Sextus. In a terrifying scene, Lucan describes Erichtho's act of raising a dead soldier to reveal the war's end to Sextus. Thus she said, and the shades of night redoubled by her art wrapped around her direful head in a turbid cloud. She wanders amidst the bodies of the slain, exposed, sepulchres being denied. The Thessalian witch selects her prophet, and examining the marrow cold in death, finds the fibers of the stiffened lungs standing without a wound, and in the dead body seeks a voice. A body selected at length with pierced throat she takes. Her locks removed, her features are revealed, and bristling with wreaths of vipers, her hair is fastened round. Then, in the first place, does she fill his breast, opened by fresh wounds with reeking blood, and plentifully supplies venom from the moon. With this, after she has mingled abominations, vile and possessing no names, she added leaves steeped in accursed spells, and herbs upon which, when shooting up, her direful mouth had spat. And whatever poisons she herself gave unto the world than a voice more potent than all drugs. Forthwith, the clotted blood grows warm and nourishes the blackened wounds and runs into the veins and the extremities of the limbs. Smitten beneath the cold breast, the lungs palpitate, 
and a new life creeping on is mingled with the marrow so lately disused. The eyes with their apertures distended wide are opened. A voice and a tongue to answer alone are granted unto him. The soldier, distressed and weeping, reveals to Sextus that Pompey will lose the war, telling him, Take back with thee, O youth, this comfort, that in their placid retreat the shades await thy father and thy house, and in the serene quarter of the realms are preparing room for Pompey. And let not the glory of a short life cause the anxiety. Make ye haste to die, and proud with your high spirit go down, though from humble graves, and tread underfoot the ghosts of Romans. Erichtho builds a fire to allow the soldier to walk in and die once more. In a final magical act, Erichtho delays the dawn, allowing Sextus and his men to sneak back into their camp under cover of night. The common aspects shared by Canidia and Erichtho, the vipers in their hair, their love of manipulating men, their familiarity with poisons and with the dead, and their general filthiness and deathly pallor, Canidia even means white or grayish, all point to high levels of anxiety about the destructive potential of women with access to sufficient power. These fears might be a reflection of the tumultuous politics of the era. Both Horace and Lucan were, after all, writing in the century following the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey Magnus, Caesar's assassination by the Roman Senate, the ascendance of Caesar Augustus and the Julio-Claudian emperors, and the subsequent transition from republic to empire. As the representative body of the Senate gave way to the solitary figure of the emperor, women close to the emperor, like Caesar Augustus's empress Livia, could exercise outsized influence on Roman politics. In her essay, From Goddess to Hag, the Greek and the Roman Witch in Classical Literature, Barbette Stanley Spaeth argues that the Roman image of the witch served as a kind of anti-woman, rather than the chaste, nurturing ideal of the Roman matron, witches like Canidia and Erichtho worked within the realms of lust and death. Canidia wouldn't hesitate to kill children in order to create love potions to torment men with insatiable desire. Erichtho used her power to drive the shade of a fallen Roman soldier back into his own wounded body to interfere with Pompey's son and the war itself. The poets credited both witches with attempting to exert tremendous power over men and their bodies. Like many magical figures, the Roman witch gained renewed fame in the Romantic era. In 1819, the English poet John Keats wrote Lamia, a poem in two parts that tells the story of Lamia, trapped in serpent form and freed by the god Hermes, she meets a handsome youth named Lysias, and the two fall in love. Their happiness is shattered, however, when a philosopher named Apollonius reveals Lamia's true identity. 
in a hat tip to the Roman witch's frightening appearance, before Lamia disappears entirely, causing Lysias to die of grief, her face transforms under the philosopher's cold gaze, from rosy and beautiful to pale and sunken. Lysias tries to intervene, but to no avail. Begone, foul dream, he cried, gazing again in the bride's face where now no azure vein wandered on fair space temples. No soft bloom misted the cheek, no passion to illume the deep recessed vision all was blight. Lamia, no longer fair, there sat a deadly white. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. Special thanks to Enchanted Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. If you want to learn more about witches in ancient Roman literature, be sure to check out the sources link in the show notes or visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.